morning and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is June 3rd, 2014, and this is broadcast number 64. You know, I got an email, I don't know when it was, a number of months ago, from a listener who says, why do you keep saying good morning, good afternoon, good night, as though we're, people are actually listening when you say good morning or good afternoon or good evening? Well, I don't know, habit. So if that helps explain why I say good morning, if you're listening in the afternoon, just ignore that part. Just th- what comes after that is the important thing. So don't worry about it. It doesn't matter what time it is. It is June 3rd, though. That much is certain. Now, it may not be June 3rd where you are if you're listening somewhere else in the world or you're listening to this three weeks later. Ah, doesn't matter. Anyway, my name is William Hill, and as usual, I am the host of this podcast. It is a podcast that is put out by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and not only am I a staff member here, but I'm also a student, and it's summer, and you know what that means. I can play golf. (laughs) Something I love to do, as most of you know. Today we have a very interesting discussion lined up. It's something that we wanted to get in at this particular juncture in the process, because Looming out there, I say that like it's bad, but anyway, looming out there in the distant near future, not distant, near future, is the PCA General Assembly. It's the 42nd, I think, 42nd PCA General Assembly that will be held in Houston, Texas this year. And because of the events that are going to happen just prior to the assembly, we wanted to talk with two men about something that's been circulating around the Internet, on social media, Twitter, you name it. And so we're going to talk with uh, Pastor Jeff Gleason and Pastor Kenneth Pierce about that particular event that's scheduled to happen just prior to the General Assembly, but more about that in just a minute. As most of you know, we do have a mobile app that you can use. Um, Simply go to the Google Play Store, the Apple iOS, whatever they call it, store. You know I'm not an Apple fan. So whatever they call that store that you Apple users use, you can go there and you can... um, Download the GPTS mobile app where this podcast is always updated, uh, sermons from our, uh, from our chapels, as well as our theology conferences, a host of information available to you on your smartphone that everybody has now, right? Smartphones. Everybody's got one. Anyway, get it. It's free. It doesn't cost you a single dime. In addition to that, don't forget about our summer classes that we're offering here at the seminary. We are offering two this year. We're offering one on uh, titled Motivation and Preaching from the Book of Acts. And then also Dr. Nick Wilborn will be doing um, uh, Southern Presbyterian Theology. And this is going to be a very unique class here at the seminary. Not only will we be spending a lot of time in the classroom, but we'll be spending a lot of time touring great Southern Presbyterian historic sites in Charleston and in Columbia, South Carolina. So you want to take advantage of that if you're able. Go to gpts.edu for all the information on that stuff that's coming up here this summer if you're not on the golf course. So, as I indicated, we're going to be talking with Pastor Jeff Gleason. He is the pastor of Cliffwood Presbyterian Church in Augusta, Georgia. And, of course, Augusta, Georgia is most famously known for... Okay, never mind. And then Pastor Kenneth Pierce, who is the senior minister of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. So, gentlemen, it's great to have you on the program to talk about this subject um, that has been um, widely circulated, I think, unless you're not connected to social media or you don't have email um, or you're not on the PCA. Um, 
a lot of people know about this, um, but why don't we start first with just um, uh, maybe with Pastor Gleason. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how long you've been ministering, where'd you go to seminary, that kind of stuff. And then, Pastor Pierce, you can follow right behind him. All right. Uh, uh, thanks, Bill. Uh, my name is Jeff Gleason. I've been pastor at Cliffwood Presbyterian Church since November of 2011. I actually met Ken because I uh, was intern at the congregation where he's serving right now at Trinity. And so I uh, went to seminary in Jackson, Mississippi from uh, 2009 to 2011. I had done some work on their virtual classes prior to that. Uh, I've been married uh, for 20 plus years to a wonderful lady named Lisa. And uh, we have uh, a bunch of little kids and some older kids. And uh, it's a delight for me to be with you today. Great. Thank you. Pastor Pierce. Yeah, I'm Ken Pierce. I've been a pastor at Trinity in Jackson since 2007. I graduated from RTS here in 1996 and was ordained in 1997. Um, I have a wonderful wife, Missy, four very lively children, and uh, Mm. that's me. (laughs) Short and sweet, yeah. very simple, <laughs> outstanding. Well, as um, as Pastor Gleason had contacted me a couple weeks back, maybe it was even a little bit further back from that, to talk about this, um, what the Aquila Report, the title of it is, A Call for an Evening of Confessional Concern and Prayer, and I underscore that, at the PCA General Assembly. Jeff, why don't you tell the listeners, how did that get going? What was the genesis of that? I mean, who was the mover and shaker behind it, and how did it, how did it sort of unravel or unwind and become now what we know as this call for an evening of prayer for the GA, at the GA? Well, it's interesting that you asked that, uh, Bill. I, it actually came about, uh, of course, in God's providence, but from a human perspective, it came about in a very strange way. I had actually called Ken as a as a young pastor, I, I frequently speak to other pastors about uh, things that come up and, and try to work through things in my own mind. And I called Ken to ask. I don't even remember what I asked him about, but I asked him about something. And uh, as the conversation was uh, was winding up, we ended up talking a little bit about uh, General Assembly and uh, the number of overtures that were coming through and, and how do you make sense of it all? How do you as a pastor, as a teaching elder, or for that matter, as a ruling elder, how do you prepare yourself uh, for the issues that are going to be considered in such a way that you're voting your conscience in an informed way and not in a kind of a, an intuitive way? Mm. And how do we as uh, confessional uh, conservative elders specifically find a way to think through these issues and the significance of these issues uh, as they come before us so that we're not voting, we're not reacting in a knee-jerk kind of way, but that we've given some thought to it and, and given some consideration uh, for it. So as Ken and I talked about it, uh, I guess I was kind of the one that brought the idea up, but it was just more of an idea, and I think Ken's response I'm paraphrasing now, of course, but was more along the lines of, well, well, why don't we do something about it? And I thought that was a novel idea. So, so then uh, got together uh, in terms of planning, reached out to some other men to see what their 
thoughts on this kind of an event were. And uh, the concern was that it would not become something that was uh, political, mm-hmm. uh, overly organized, kind of like a conservative version of of, uh, of a political faction within the PCA. So uh, we took that information, and at that same time, we got in touch with uh, Mel Duncan. Ken orchestrated that to get in touch with uh, Mel Duncan over at Second Pres in Greenville. And in God's providence, we were heading in, heading in the same direction in terms of uh, something that we uh, thought was important. So as we talked with uh, with Rick Phillips there and Mel and, and Ken, and, and between the four of us, we, we put together uh, an understanding of uh, the important topics and then also focused it and anchored it very much in prayer, uh, seeking to lay these things before our sovereign God, because it's... Mm-hmm. It's his church, and 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 we are just uh, jars of clay participating participating in in his ministry in the church. That that's my understanding and my recollection of the genesis of it. And there are lots of details to fill in between that, but that's kind of the big picture. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ken, I'm just curious. Um, uh, obviously, uh, Jeff was talking with you. You you sound like the mover and shaker of the bunch. Um, <laughs> you're like kind of like me. I, I'm more about okay, let's stop talking, let's do, um, kind of thing. Um, what, were there any concerns as you talked initially about, as Jeff has already indicated, uh, the potential um, for this being looked at by, and, and for lack of a better way of expressing this, uh, the guys on the other side of the fence. I, I, I don't mean that in a mean-spirited right. way. I right. just don't know how else to express it. Right. Um, it, was there any concern as you talked in the early stages of this that this could get per, be perceived by those on the other side of the fence um, as kind of a secret club type of event that was um, that was being orchestrated? Yes, uh, that was at the <clears throat> right in the initial part of the conversation, if I remember right. We we talked about that and how some of the older uh, conservative brothers, uh, teaching elders, and so on were reticent to do anything that smacked of political organizing, uh, mm. regardless of often being accused of that. We, we, anytime we had talked to <clears throat> different people who were, we consider elder brothers in the faith on the more confessional side of the aisle, uh, that they don't want to have any part, and I think wisely so, in any sort of political posturing <clears throat> or secret organizations or anything like that. So we tried to mitigate that as much as we could. The main way we did that is by making a completely open invitation. There's no membership list. It's not another organization. There's no acronym for it. You know, there's and certainly everything we're trying to do is out in the open. We're trying to strike a careful balance between we have to keep this organized enough where it doesn't become just another gripe session with five minutes of prayer at the end. But we need to pick our battles. We need to be smart about what battles we pick and not just take a scattershot approach that the truth of uh, of God's truth hanging in the balance on every minor issue that the denomination might face, we can, and even some of significant interest. But what are the what are maybe the four most pressing in our minds issues that need to be addressed? And finding the right people, we thought to address them who were knowledgeable, scholarly even tempered and then uh, had a uh, had respectability on, on uh, 
both sides of the aisle. And again, those are judgment calls, and it's not saying anything about those we didn't pick, but I think the Lord was very gracious to us, and, and, and the men that said yes and agreed to, um, to, to come present on these topics. Yeah, I, I remember when I got the email, my first, my first rea- reaction was, wow, this is a great idea, I wish I was going. <laughs> well, I think that um, the nature of that, I mean, that you're not the only person, some have expressed that to us in terms of, uh, you know, I wish we had known about this earlier or something like that. And, and I think part of that just speaks to how this whole idea yep. came about. It was it was more spontaneous. And, and uh, so as a result of that spontaneity, it, it had ended up starting a little bit later than we would have liked. Mm-hmm. But that's just right. the nature of how it happened. Yeah, I, you know, and I, I, when I, as I looked at it, I thought, well, you know, I, I'm, in a, I'm, a, I'm a ruling elder, as everybody knows that listens to this often, in a small, struggling, local PCA congregation, and we just can't afford it. I mean, it's just a, it, you know, it's one of the, my, well, it's not the, one of my biggest complaints, but it's, it's in the, probably the top 20 list of things that, I, that disturb me about our GA, and I, I'd love to be there, um, participate in the work of the church, uh, and be involved in this, fellowship with my other brothers, but I can't. I can't afford it. Um, yeah. It's just one of those issues, and I know I'm not alone when I talk about that. I know a lot of ruling elders who just can't do it because of the costs. Well, but uh, anyway... Yeah, it's become an unfortunate reality, and, and I think it will grow uh, more so in the coming years. Part of it is because we're reticent to do anything that might make the General Assembly smaller and more affordable for whatever reason. Right. And and I think sometimes in so full-flight reaction against the abuses of the old Southern Church that the thought of a presbytery sending uh, you know, paying for delegates to go to General Assembly is something that's never even been discussed. So that was certainly the practice of churches in the past. Sure. So yep. it's become a matter of can you afford to go cast your vote? You know, and it's unfortunate. I don't think anybody wants it to be that way, but uh, but it is unfortunate. It is. I think the majority of us that would like to be there aren't not going because. We just can't. I mean, that, that, it's, that, is, that is, I think, fundamentally the issue. But be that as it may, and I, there's a listener out there that's laughing right now. He told me a long time ago, he said, he goes, I always wait for you to say that, be that as it may. Anyway, I don't know where I picked that up from. I got it from somebody else probably, and it just sort of hung around, and now it's part of my uh, M.O. But anyway. What I am encouraged by, uh, as as I got the email and and as I read it and I and I considered it, um, what what really encouraged me and and maybe other listeners who saw the email or who has, who have noticed it on the social networks and whatnot, maybe that this wasn't your reaction, but what was what encouraged me was that instead of as you said, getting together, let's gripe about what's wrong, let's talk about be constructive and let's pray as the as the dominating element theme in this in this gathering of men um, for the general assembly for the denomination because so much of what we read sadly on social networks and other places about our denomination about the PCA is generally negative mm-hmm. and and it begins to discourage um, and 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 I know you don't have to be on Facebook very long to see those kinds of things. Just yesterday, there was something that was put on Facebook that I, I, I was, it, it, it bothered me. And I told the person who, who put it on there, I, I think you're, you're furthering a bad report. You need not do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even know about it. 
until you furthered it. Yeah. Now, but that's what sort of has characterized us, unfortunately. And so I'm very encouraged to see that that is not the goal here. The goal here is not to gripe, is to not to complain, but to pray about these particular matters. And that's what you state really up front in the objectives. I'm looking at the website. And for those who are listening, I will have the link to that in case you've been living under a rock and don't know anything about this. Um, I will have the link so that you can go read it for yourself so you don't take my word for it. I'm not making this stuff up. But your first objective is to gather PCA elders who are concerned about trends that may threaten our confessional unity as a denomination. Now, what I don't know who wants to answer this, but um, when you're talking about threatening things that threaten confessional unity, what do you mean by that? Well, Go ahead, uh, <laughs> it's a loaded question, well, I, I realize. Well, I just think to, to answer it thoroughly, I think it's important to back up just a little bit and, and consider, mm-hmm. you know, there's there are 52 overtures to date listed mm-hmm. on the on the administrative committee's website. And I think in terms of issues to deal with, narrowing that down somewhat becomes easy because just the volume of of the different issues that are being discussed. So, uh, you know, you take three different issues like the the Standing Judicial Commission and Child Protection and redistricting of presbyteries. That covers about 80% of the 52 overtures. But because of the volume of all those overtures, sometimes it's hard to keep your eye on what is significant and and what really affects the health of our denomination. So buried in in the other in the other overtures, you have some some declarations on social issues. You have the ad interim report on insider movements. You have uh, a warning against uh, erroneous creation views and and all these other issues that are included in that, uh, which may get lost in the shuffle. And I think in terms of that first objective, in terms of gathering uh, people concerned about trends that threaten our confessional unity, it's really that process of wading through. Uh, the 52 overtures and saying, okay, uh, either this is a symptom of a of a deeper issue, or this really is a, a manifestation, a new manifestation maybe of a of a deeper weakness that we're seeing develop in our denomination, and it's and it's really living according to the charge that we're giving given by God as elders in His church to guard uh, the purity of the church in terms of uh, its doctrinal uh, position, and so. Not every issue can be lumped in that category, and and our goal is simply to bring uh, together people who have seen concern, and uh, mm-hmm. for the purpose not again of of griping, but to encourage to to think through how does this affect our denomination? Uh, is there a proper response to it? How can we positively respond to weaknesses that we see? And then, of course, uh, like you mentioned earlier on, and the prayer being so central. Uh, taking uh, our conversation and then bathing that in prayer uh, to the only one who's going to make anything happen, and that's that's God, of course. He is He is the uh, the sovereign one. So, so in terms of uh, confessional concern, I think uh, the confessional unity that we're seeking to protect is it's a positive step. It's it's not seeking to exclude. It's it's seeking to come together as a as a denomination and and. Uh, as many as are open to, to coming and joining with us to, to consider together what the implications of these different overtures could be in, in, in this particular General Assembly. Yeah, and, it, and it's important to, to note that under the first objective there, it says we want to gather PCA elders. It doesn't say 
We want to gather conservative PCA elders. It doesn't, it, it doesn't qualify. Okay. If you're an elder in the PCA, no matter what you, your stance is on particular things, if whatever it may be, um, you're open, well, welcomed, wanted, come. Exactly. And, and that's important to underscore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you kind of bled, I think, into the second objective, which is to highlight and provide information about matters of significant concern to this year's assembly in the form of overtures and study committee reports. And, and it's been said, there are – I was on the overtures committee last year, and I, I think we had like 30-something overtures, if I remember correctly. This year, there's over 50. Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, I'm not on overtures this year. Well, obviously, I'm not going, but um, I'm kind of glad I'm not. Anyway, um, but the third issue is really the the, the key issue, and then we're going to get into some, I think, move into these specific things that you highlight here, and uh, we'll just kind of alternate back and forth between the both of you on them. But the the third issue is, is the one that really needs to be underscored with two or three lines, and that is that, it's not a gripe session. It's a prayer session. It's a prayer meeting, seeking God's help. And, and as you said right here in the article, um, Psalm 124, verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And, and I think that's a, such a critical piece, it, recognizing as elders who lead Christ's church that we have to humble ourselves. We have to let him be the good shepherd. We have to let him be the king ahead of the church. And, and as you said, only he can affect any change that needs to be made. That's right. Uh, we can have all the plans, but unless he gets out in front of us by his spirit, we're going to be completely lost. So, I mean, I commend this. I think it's a wonderful process. But you do then highlight, and, and we'll talk about the speakers as well, but you highlight four things, and I guess we'll start with Ken. Uh, the first issue that, that is, um, Sean, looks like Sean Lucas is going to be um, talking about is the Standing Judicial Commission. So why don't you tell the listeners first, what is the Standing Judicial Commission? Right. I know you know, and I know, but many may not know, and how that works and functions, and then perhaps maybe why this is included in the list. Right, yeah, the Standing Judicial Commission acts in, on the behalf of the General Assembly to deal with any court cases that uh, arise at the lower court levels, the session and the presbytery levels that have the right of appeal up to the General Assembly. At a certain point uh, in the past of the PCA was finding the General Assembly so bogged down by having to deal with judicial cases and essentially trying them mm-hmm. by a committee of the whole that it delegated that authority to a commission elected by the Assembly and, and <laughs> One of the questions you're asked on most ordination exams is, what's the difference between a committee and a commission? A committee uh, deals with business that's uh, sent to it or brought to it and reports back to the General Assembly, in this case, for the General Assembly to act. But a commission acts as the Assembly. And so the, the Assembly, at a certain point, decided we're going to delegate our duties as a court of the church to a select group of, of ruling and teaching elders who will be elected by the court, but they will be the court of final appeal for the PDCA. The problem, and it's acknowledged, in, and not just in confessional quarters, I think it's acknowledged in other quarters too, is that in our desire to uh, be grassroots, to avoid any sort of top-down, uh, dictatorial kind of uh, authority structure, unlike the old Southern Church, 
that the polity we put in place has proven ineffectual in dealing with particularly cases of false teaching or alleged false teaching that arise in the lower courts, which the lower courts um, deem acceptable. Mm-hmm. In other words, as long as I understand it, and I'm no polity expert, I can think of far better people to ask about this than I am, but it seems that the SJC thinks, and there's a way of reading the rules of, <coughs> of discipline, that if a lower court uh, crosses its teeth and dots its eyes procedurally, that uh, the higher court cannot take up matters of uh, content that it's only there to take up matters of procedure, that to protect the rights of the accused <clears throat> is really all they're there to do, and they can, uh, well, that may not be completely fair, but they cannot take up the content of whatever charges might be against a person, only adjudicate as to whether the procedure that was followed by the court uh, was correct. And Sean Lucas, <clears throat> I don't want to speak for him, but he's, he's a very clear thinker, and you can see his article on this, uh, at by page online and other places, and uh, he he's thought through how to how to uh, perhaps fix this. What simple polity fixes can be put into place? And an overture has come out of his presbytery uh, to the general assembly to uh, to address uh, just that matter. So we thought Sean would be a, a very good uh, advocate of, of, or one to speak on this particular uh, topic. Mm. Yeah, it's an important issue because, as you said, uh, the Standard Judicial Commission is just that. It's a commission. And so when they rule, it's ruled. Right. And the, 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 the court then, the General Assembly in this case, uh, really is, has no, no say one way or the other. I mean, 98% of the General Assembly can, can disagree with the Standard Judicial Commission, and it makes no difference. And, and so this is why, as it says here in the article, to, this is why uh, Pastor Lucas uh, is going to offer his thoughts on how to best address concerns of accountability in the SJC. And I think you hit on what, as I was on the Overtures Committee last year, even men that were on the other side of the fence, again, I don't mean that in a nasty way, um, those that I would not necessarily agree with confessionally on certain issues were even saying that the problem we have, given the current unpleasantness, and those in the PCA know exactly what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. um, recognize that the problem is that we can't get to the problem because of our procedures. Right, exactly. And so we're trying to resolve that. And I think that's where the accountability question comes in. And if I had to guess, I'm sure that's going to be a heavy part of the discussion I would think when it relates to it. And I think one thing that's important to keep in mind is people can differ as to what the right solution is. Uh, there's a there's a danger in making uh, or longing for a perfect solution and not being willing to settle for one that is essentially good. <clears throat> and I think that uh, and people can differ as to what even the essentially good one would be, but but to at least be thinking through, obviously we have created a polity cul-de-sac here you, that we cannot find our way out of and in my case, and I don't know, maybe in Jeff's and others too, when you come back and tell your session that we essentially can't deal with matters of false teaching because our, we're procedurally hamstrung, that does not, that's something that's very hard for, for the average person to understand, and I think it should be hard for the average person to understand mm-hmm. uh, that a higher court cannot deal with a lower court that is um, 
may have gone rogue in a particular case or closed ranks around a, a, a person. Yeah, I yeah I totally agree with you. I mean, I'm uh, you know fourth year in seminary, um, ruling elder, understand the polity, and when I see that kind of thing, even I'm like scratching my head, going, I, I don't get it. Um, it seems really ultimately counterproductive long term. Oh, it is, and, and um, I think it may be our undoing uh, if we don't address it because it, it, it calls into question as to why we even have higher courts if. It's exactly. really not able to deal with any kind of matters of substance. And and again, the, the BCO, as I read it, isn't even clear on what particular sanctions the higher court has if, a, if the lower court decides not to abide by its instructions. I mean, this has never been put to the test. And I think what we're doing is in our very short history, uh, it's just natural for us to encounter things that couldn't have been foreseen by the founders and having to address them. But it's just a matter of, is there enough trust out there among uh, the commissioners that nobody thinks that anyone is trying to work some sort of ulterior motive by by trying to alter the structure, and that's what often I think we run into in trying to do it is people start guessing if a particular side is trying to press its advantage, and I pray that I I don't think that's the case, and I pray it's not perceived that way. Yep, agreed. Um, Jeff, do you have anything you want to add to that? No, I'm glad you asked Ken about the Standing Judicial Commission and not me. <laughs> I did it with fear and trembling. <laughs> Wish my friend Franco well, was here to explain it. But <laughs> yeah, it. Well, I mean, it sounds like you know I've been in the PCA since 1998. It sounds like the SJC sounds like a good logistical solution to an otherwise difficult matter when you have 1,300 uh, delegates. I mean, that's not the right word. 1,300 commissioners at the General Assembly trying to deal with trying to deal with judicial matters. I, you're right. It can become a uh, it can become a circus. I mean, let's just call it what it is. But at the same time, if it's not accomplishing what it's there to do, which is to protect the domination from false teaching, heresy, or whatever it may be, um, then it's not doing anything. It's not accomplishing anything. And right. so, and we, I think we've learned in the last few years, anyway, that our procedures are the problem. It's not necessarily the SJC, but it's the procedures that the SJC are bound by. Right. Thus, they have to be fixed. Uh, well, I think there's a reason why there are nine overtures that kind of deal at least tangentially with this issue. I think that's, that speaks volumes. Yeah, my guess is that the overtures committee will probably take those under, probably take them, if they're all similar, they'll probably take them in, um, all together, but that's, I'm guessing, of course, I have no idea how they're going to handle it. Um, and, of course, for the listener's sake, assuming, this, uh, assuming that the General Assembly uh, give... Uh, pass those overtures in the in the whatever they're asking for. I'm just going to say in the affirmative because I don't know what they're asking. But um, let's say they did that. That wouldn't mean anything right away. It was still then when they would have to go to the presbyteries, they would have to vote, and they'd have to I think two thirds, and then they have to come back to the next general assembly and vote it again. It's not going to be solved this year. Right. But um, getting that process out there, and as I indicated, uh, uh, this was a big topic of discussion last year in the overtures committee. Yeah. Because guys wanted to do one thing, but they couldn't because of the procedure. Right. And that was the problem. So, anyway. All right, I think we've killed that horse. Let's move on to the next the next issue of concern. And this is where uh, Dr. Guy Waters, who uh, I have interviewed in the past on another subject of unpleasantness. It starts with F and ends with vision. Um, <laughs> but it, well, he was very helpful in that subject, but that's for another day. But the role of women in church offices, and I guess we'll let Jeff take this softball subject. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Philadelphia Presbyterian sent Overture Number 22 up to the GA 
requesting a study committee. Now, let me just stop there and ask you, um, and this is obviously, and, and understand, guys, when I ask these kinds of questions, I realize I'm just getting your opinion. Yeah. So yeah. you don't have to worry about this is not like being transcribed and sent to the world, as it were, <laughs> um, as your official position, and that's the way it should be. But in your opinion, Jeff, do you think a study committee is going to be helpful? Well, I think that that question really strikes at the at the heart of what we're working through in terms of, in my mind, and I know from talking with Ken as we've talked about these issues together, uh, this is more of a, a, a symptom issue than it is mm-hmm. anything else. I mean, for us, from my perspective, for us to be asking a question about whether or not uh, it is acceptable for a teaching elder to hold a view that includes women in the offices of the church, not deacons, but in the role in the office of elder, I think we have to stop and, and ask ourselves, why are we do we think we need to ask this question? And if and if a and if a teaching elder thinks that they can uh, come to scripture and, and come away with it uh, with the opinion that women are able to serve in the role of elder, and then I think we have to ask ourselves the denomin uh, as a denomination a question of of clarity in in exegesis in terms of how can we come to that conclusion and if we can come to that conclusion what other conclusions can we reach as well uh, that also might be harmful uh, because what we're in essence doing is reducing the significance of of biblical direction and saying that that is something that we can play uh, and I don't want to impugn people's motives but it's it's something that that seems that you can play kind of loose with those directions and and make it say whatever you want it to say. So from my perspective, I think this issue is important uh, on a, uh, this is just a, it's like, it's like uh, the symptom of a greater disease. I mean, it's strong language, I know, but uh, it's, it's, it's a problem that stems from, from uh, an approach to scripture, I, I think. Mm-hmm. And, well, it's a hermeneutical issue. You're right. Yeah. And so I think that as we, uh, consider this issue. That's uh, I don't know what Guy Waters is going to say about it, but that's uh, that's what I'm expecting. At least part of the conversation to be about is how do we? How, why is it necessary to discuss an issue that is clearly not permitted in Scripture? And if it's clearly not f- permitted in Scripture, why would we want to have leaders in the church hold that position, uh, even if? if there's some kind of a sense that they would agree not to teach it. I, I, I just think that that kind of a, a view will, will seep into other areas of, of church life unavoidably, I think, especially if your leader holds that position. So uh, I'm glad you said you're asking for my opinion because that's what it is. But I do think it's a, it's a very important issue, uh, and I think, I think it's important to, dis- to discuss it because it, it kind of uh, deals with our anchor, What's our starting point, and how are we arriving at this uh, this point where we're drifting off and asking questions that uh, that are that are not complicated, in my view, anyways? Yeah, and 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 I think it may even be helpful, Jeff, if you could elaborate just briefly. Um, this overture is requesting a study committee. Yeah. What exactly? Let's let's assume for the sake of argument that the study committee is approved. Uh, they're funded. They go out and they study for one year, and they come back and say, "Yes, the Bible teaches that elders should only be men and deacons should only be men," and that's the end of it. Okay, what does that mean for the denomination? Well, I don't think they're necessarily asking for a, 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 an official position on men only elders. 
I think what they're trying to do is find out whether or not a teaching elder being ordained or maybe a ruling elder also being ordained to that office can have the exception that women are are able to hold the office of elder. Uh, mm. They may agree not to teach it, uh, but but in their minds, they're being faithful to their ordination vows, which would require them to believe the scriptures of the Old New Testament, which would require them to adopt uh, the confessions of faith and the catechisms and, and approve the form of government. Uh, in their view, women mm. as elders mm-hmm. would be able to function with that within that that paradigm, but they recognize that in the PCA that would not be allowed. And so the question really is, is this uh, an allowable exception from, from what from what I read of that overture? And so, okay, yeah, that's helpful clarification. Now, what if they came back and said it's not allowable exception, then what? What does that mean? Well, if it's an, a, not an allowable exception, then it's important that the SJC is actually corrected because if people then would ignore that then there would have to be some way of dealing with them uh, in terms of of uh, a discipline. Uh, hopefully, you don't ever have to end up there, of course. But there there has to be some kind of a mechanism where uh, people who uh, who live in open defiance of the constitution of the PCA have to be able to be addressed. And and so that's all that does. It it, it in my mind it it draws the line in the sand. It it, it draws. Uh, it, it draws a boundary, gives us a box. You know, our kids like like boxes. They know they need sure. to know where to where the boundaries are. And, and so I think people are uh, grown ups are, are no different. <laughs> they need to know where the where the boxes are as well. And, and I think this is a question that kind of draws that line. What what um, as far as study committees are concerned, just you know, again for the listeners' sake, and as you probably know, one of the things I try to do when I'm asking questions as I'm thinking about people that are out there that aren't as closely connected to these things, they may be kind of saying, well, what does a study committee actually do other than give information? I mean, does it bind the assembly judicially? So the, so if the study committee came back and said, you can't hold that exception, uh, that's not a viable exception, would that then bind every ruling elder, teaching elder that does hold that exception? Would they have to, like, resign? Would they have to change their position? Are they required by the assembly to do anything, or is it just pious advice? Right. I, well, I would put it in the pious advice category. They, they haven't right. done anything to change the Book of Church Order or the confessional statements, which form the constitution of the, of the, of the PCA. So, uh, you know, that's what we adhere to. That's what we're, we're, we take an oath mm-hmm. to, to adhere to as, as elders. And so uh, the study committee is, is, is doing that work of, of thinking through an issue and, and providing advice uh, for folks. It seems to me, as you were talking, I, was, I grabbed my BCO. The Book of Church Order, for those who don't know what that is, um, it's the Constitution of the PCA. It's one of the documents. Obviously, the standards are the other secondary documents. Um, be very clear when I say that. Um, but it seems like that it, the BCO is pretty clear already that it's for men. Yeah, I think absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm afraid, and this is, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate. I know some people don't like that phrase, but everybody knows what I mean by that. I'm standing on the other side going, well, I'm on the Overtures Committee, and I'm thinking, yeah, what do we need a study committee for? The BCO is already very clear that it's only open to men, and I guess I haven't read the Overture, so I'm not exactly sure of all the nuances, but I anticipate that possible response. 
that's just an anticipation. Well, and I, I don't necessarily uh, I don't necessarily disagree with that response. I mean, it is true we do already have clarity in our in our book of church order on this issue. Why would we need to have a study committee to see whether or not this is an acceptable right. view? And I think I think there's some uh, murkiness, if that's if that's the right word to use, about mm-hmm. what constitutes something that strikes at the vitals of religion, which is kind of a vague concept, I think, sometimes when we're trying to work through what is an allowable, allowable exception and what is not. And I think this overture, uh, if, I'm, if I understand their intention properly, I think this overture is trying to sort through, is this an issue that would preclude a man from serving as an elder in the PCA? Yeah, and I think in, in, in without, and I'm not trying to diminish its importance by plain devil's advocate, because I also, uh, knowing a little bit about church history, know that this is one of those issues that usually puts a denomination on an extremely slippery slope. Yeah. And so it needs to be addressed with the, with the seriousness that it deserves. Because if, in fact, it's okay for an officer in Christ's church to, to hold an exception on this subject and say, well, you know, okay, you know, generally it should be men, but I have no problem with women being elders. Okay, that's my personal position. There's, there's no real safeguard because ultimately that view, whether formally taught or otherwise, is going to come out somewhere. That's right. Um, like the beach ball being held underwater. You can only do it so long, eventually it finds its way to the surface, and that's what's going to happen and, and between you and me and everybody listening. Um, I've never quite understood how a person can serve in good conscience when they're forced to um, not speak on something they believe they're conscience-bound to believe. I, I've always been a little muddled by that, but that's okay. Yeah, um, can I weigh in on that for just a second? Absolutely. <clears throat> yep. I had a, you know, kind of growing up in Western Michigan, I had a front row seat on this whole issue in the Christian Reformed Church. So I, I grew up in the more liberal side mm-hmm. of the Reformed mm-hmm. tradition. And this is, you know, history is not determinative, but it is, it should be instructive. And this is precisely the sort of thing that happened there, whereas they decided at a certain point that it wasn't necessarily uh, something that ought to keep people from the office of, of, elder, minister, because of their views on women, but the church itself wasn't going to change. Well, inevitably, the church itself changed. It, it can't not change if you're allowing views that are contrary to your standards on, on a fundamental issue. I think the larger issue we face in the PCA is, again, it's one of these polity problems. Uh, how do we regard our vow of the Book of Church Order? If something's not addressed in the Confession, and it is addressed in the Book of Church Order, I mean, did you take an issue with what the ruling elder representation at the General Assembly is and still be ordained? Well, yeah, because, well, I would hope, you know, something something along that line, or we could never modify our church order. But what are the fundamental things, and maybe at some point we do need to define this, but what are the fundamental things that you cannot take issue with? That's a great, that's a great suggestion. I wonder why it hasn't been done. Well, I think... That, I mean, that, that's... That's fantastic. Well, there's a, I think there's a, a problem with that because, I mean, not a problem with it. I think the perceived problem is on the left or the right is you're, well, then you're adding another confessional standard to the church. Uh, and like Jeff said, Scripture is clear on this, but Scripture is clear on everything that the Westminster Confession teaches, and yet many people disagree. I, th- I think there's a, yep. 
a need to state, look, these are these are sine qua non kind of issues for the PCA. I mean, and you cannot hold, you cannot vary on these opinions and be ordained. And that would be, that would take a long time to figure out what a a concise list of those things ought to be. But certainly, uh, you know, uh, complementarianism ought to be at the forefront. It's the issue that's under attack because, like y'all pointed out, it changes your whole hermeneutic. And that's what happened in the, uh, the CRC is they they developed a biblical justification for it, as unbelievable as it seems. I mean, it's a Byzantine piece of work to read it because uh, <laughs> you when you're trying to subvert the the uh, clear teaching of Scripture, you have to make a lot of uh, hula hoops. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. And that's, I think that's the danger of the road we're, we're headed down. Yeah, I, I'm with Jeff on this. I mean, why does it even need to be? Addressed, it, it, it ought to be something. And again, our, our founders could not have foreseen this becoming an issue, but it should be something that was just taken for granted. But now, perhaps we have to come out even stronger. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. And I, and and you know, I, I was thinking back a few years ago when when the vote came to the floor on the question of whether they were going to send the question of intinction to the presbyteries, and it passed by 13 votes. And um, and and some people were saying, well, it's already in the BCO, it's already disallowed in the BCO, so why do we have to go through this process? And I think because, similarly to this issue, because it strengthens the position of the BCO and puts it in front of us again for us to be reminded of the serious nature of these issues. Right. I mean, Doug and, Kelly gave a brilliant speech about that and said it in its historical context on what he called Entezi deliverances, Entezi deliverances yep. of of church courts, and we just seem to be allergic to that on both on both ends of the spectrum. And I think that's why it it's, it doesn't happen. But the problem with study committee reports is they kind of occupy this third place. I mean, Jeff is completely right in what he says is it's pious advice, except when it serves a person's purposes. Then all of a sudden it becomes an NTC deliverance. Right. Uh, you know, all, all of a sudden, well, we allow this or that because we had a study committee and it said this. And sometimes even the minority report of the study committee becomes an MVC deliverance of the court. It, it's it's just a very strange um, uh, polity position we find ourselves in. Absolutely. Well, since you're still talking, well, that didn't come out right. You knew what I meant. <laughs> since you're the one that's currently talking, <laughs> that's what I should have said. Um uh, anyway, uh, the, the third issue of concern is, uh, I don't know why you, you seem to be getting the, the more difficult ones, perhaps. Well, I don't know. Um, just have number four. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, actually, that's number four is great. and I, I, I Well, we'll get to four. But the third one is one that, um, again, in, in a similar sense, uh, as you look through church history, especially within Presbyterianism, especially American Presbyterianism, uh, this is another one of those issues, sort of the other prong of the fork that um, has led denominations down the primrose path, you know, down that slippery slope, and women in office and, and the views there. But this one, the views of creation, again, um, it, we, we seem to always be coming up to these subjects, this one in particular, right. and, and, and the one that Overture 32 is going to deal with, uh, specifically targets, uh, I think, the biologos mm-hmm. discussion and issue, and, 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 and wonderfully, Rick Phillips is going to be doing the talk on that, and I know that he knows from whence he speaks on this yes. subject, because he's in my presbytery. Yeah, right. So we've heard about this already, but why don't you try as best you can to summarize point three here. 
Yeah, and, and I think Rick is ideally situated because he did have a front row seat when he was in Philadelphia to mm-hmm. Peter Enns and, and, and others. Um, yeah, and actually my own thinking has changed on this matter. I, I used to be a lot more uh, accepting of, uh, that's not even the right word, it's not that I'm not accepting, but I was a lot more comfortable with differing views of creation because I'm a history guy and I look back in history and saw that, well, Men like Machen and Warfield and Hodge and so on were, were somewhat open to older theories, and therefore it, it ought to be all right. But then as, I, as this has developed with Biologos, I've started to ask the question of, well, if, you, if you're going to allow for variations on Genesis 1 and 2, you have to come up with a way of, of reconciling that amount of time with the creation of, of man. And it, you either have to do incredible... Uh, hermeneutical leaps to do that, or you go the biologos route of just saying, well, the whole thing has to be metaphorical, and even Adam and Eve themselves were uh, some sort of allegorical, metaphorical expression of proto-hominid groups that were all of a sudden implanted with a soul or something. Uh, And the question is... I just saw the listeners fall over. Go, huh? <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Well, if it sounds complicated, it's because it is. I mean, the, because it is. The, the truth is blessedly simple, and and deviations from it are complicated for a reason. I think. Um, yeah. Well, everybody not, knows. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, everybody knows. Uh, obviously, this is a podcast of Greenville Seminary. Everybody knows the position of Greenville Seminary. You know, we're six right. day. 24 cre- hour creation we're taught that we're taught the other positions as it were as comparison factors but the reality is is that as you just said the simplicity of genesis 1 and 2 are what they are they're simple right, right. and we have created more hoops just like point 2 above to try to somehow reconcile all these issues that seem rather simple when you read them right not the all that baggage always, the question is always to me why we draw the li- or why they draw the line at Genesis 2 or Genesis 9 of things that were so implausible that we have to find some sort of naturalistic explanation for them when you have the resurrection, you know? And there's certainly no naturalistic way of explaining that. Uh, And so I think hermeneutically, it becomes a real problem. What's happened, just to kind of try to simply boil it down, is yes, we've tolerated four different views of of the length of creation days uh, for a very long time. Uh, there are historical reasons for that, but what Biologos has pursued that's different than that is based upon uh, genetic research. Uh, Francis Collins, who's a, a, a Christian uh, geneticist, a thoughtful man in many ways, evangelical Christian at the top of his field, uh, has said, well, the, the genetic information that we are, the DNA code that we're looking at cannot be traceable back to a single human pair. So, Obviously, then, using that scientific uh, understanding, the, the truth that we know it, quote-unquote, uh, now about science, we've been, we've been reading the Bible wrong if we're reading it literally as pointing to a, a, an original human pair, that is, Adam and Eve. Well, from a standpoint of biblical interpretation, not even, not even dealing with the fact that Moses presents them as historical figures— You have a whole theology in the Bible built upon Adam being the representative head of the whole human race. I just tossed the book of Romans out if Adam's not real. 
Right, and the, the idea of imputed sin and uh, and the covenant of works, all of these things hinge, um, it hinge particularly on that doctrine. It's so interesting to me, as, as one who's looking at 19th century Southern Presbyterian history, for all the many issues we could bring up where they were short-sighted on matters of race and things, uh, many of the Southern Presbyterians stood steadfastly against the idea that there was more than original human pair, that that uh, those of African descent were a different species. That idea was being promulgated by a prominent biologist of the day, a Harvard biologist, also a Christian. Uh, but the Southern Presbyterians, almost to a man, stood against that on the very grounds that Genesis uh, teaches clearly that all men, black, white, whatever, are descended from Adam and fallen in him and capable of redemption through Christ. And now... Here we are again, some 100, 150 years later, dealing with the same uh, uh, exact issue. Just out of curiosity, and and I want you both to weigh in on this, um, kind of looking at this perspective, this issue from just the the average member sitting in the pew week after week. I mean, you're both pastoring churches. I don't know the sizes, but who cares? Um, Do you think the average member cares about this? I mean, could they even really get their mind around it? I think they care about it when it's put in simple terms. Uh, Is the Bible true? Can I trust my Bible? Is it historical? Um, uh, Is it literal in the sense, I mean, we all understand there are metaphorical passages in the Bible, but they're pretty evident as to what they are. And this idea that Moses was writing allegory up until a certain point and then shifted to history with no indication in how the book is written, that that's the case, uh, I think strikes the average person in the pew is pretty ludicrous, generally speaking, if he's thinking in terms of of the Bible being the inerrant word of God. Well, sure. If I mean, if I dropped Genesis 1 and 2 in front of a, you know, a, a nine-year-old child and said, read that and tell me what, you, what it says, I, I, I would say 100 times out of 100, they're going to say, well, this says that God created the world. Right. Right. He spoke and it came. Right. You know, no theological verbiage. It's just he spoke, as Dr. Piper would say, by fiat, the world was exist- was created. Right. You know, the eight fiat acts, and no, no child would say it that way, but that's ultimately what it boils down to. The eight fiat acts of God in Genesis chapter 1 is how it all got here. Now, it, you know, everything else is just very confusing and 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 i've read the articles i've interviewed um a, a, a couple men on the subject um biologos tim keller i mean yes i said his name okay everybody go nuts um you know um you know being affiliated with this and causing you know these kinds of concerns but i guess maybe jeff could weigh in here i guess in a similar sense to number two, because it's a hermeneutical issue, three, the, the issue with creation, again, really, at the end of the day, doesn't it cause us to reflect on a hermeneutical process? Well, I think that's exactly right. And what I was going to say about this issue is, you know, you asked if people in the pew are concerned about it. Well, even if they're not, I think if they hear the significance of it, as Ken has so capably done just a couple of minutes ago, I think... Theologically, the significance can become very apparent, and I think as elders in the church, it's our job to show them the significance of these issues, whether they recognize them in the moment or or not. And and so I I just think that it deals, uh, 
like Ken said, with so many, there are so many theological implications that flow from this issue uh, that, that, again, makes it one of the more significant things that we will have to uh, deal with as a denomination even, this, this view of creation. It's, um, I didn't read the overture. Um, perhaps one of you did, um, which would be helpful. I probably should have read it before I got on the air with you. <laughs> um, bad host. Anyway, um, what exactly is this overture hoping to do? Do you remember? Well, I think it's a hoping to offer some correction. Uh, it's not seeking to. Uh, it, it's it's seeking to curb the influence of of the voice of the biologos of the wor- world. I think. And, Is it trying to frame bring the the assembly as and then of course the denomination back under the four views? Yeah. Think uh, so. Position that's been held, even though I don't. Yeah, and, and I I'm not crazy about and it. It's, but. And it's even it's even encouraging churches to be more to do exactly what we're we're, we're talking about in terms of helping people see the significance. I think mm-hmm. it's I think it's a a positive overture rather. Than, I mean, if you frame it in that language rather than a negative, it's it's, it's gotcha. seeking to tell us w- what we ought to do in in terms of a positive contribution rather than a you shall not. Yeah. Yeah, very good. And and again, it just you know, for the listeners' sake, if you don't, if you didn't track with ninety eight percent of this, just understand this: uh, the two issues that we've just talked about, two and three, have been the leading historical issues. There's others, but these two issues have been the leading issues in the demise of denominations in history. Mm-hmm. I mean, this these are critical pieces, it, it, hermeneutically, theologically. I mean, how do you give any comfort to your people in your churches? When you tell them, well, you know, we really can't be sure about how God created the world. We're, it, it, he seems to say it this way, but we're not really. So we just don't know. I mean, how do you give any reliability to the Bible? Right. I mean, and, and, and as it's been well said many times, this is not new with me. Um, if you can destroy Genesis, especially the first two chapters, you can destroy the whole Bible. And so it is that important. Yeah, so, it is. And, it is. I, and that's... Uh, I think that's what's lost on a lot of well-intentioned people who are trying to interact with the world on, on the world's terms is, is to go to the scripture from the standpoint of naturalism. It just, it cannot work. Uh, you have to, you have to surrender everything. If you're willing, if you're going to do that, you'd have to surrender resurrections, particularly, and the people, I'm not saying that anyone in the current debate is doing that. Once you open that hermeneutical door, um, it, it's not hard to, for the next generation then to walk through it. It's precisely what happened in the modernist controversy in the early 20th century. They started with pristine intentions, as far as I can tell, to make the gospel palatable to modern scientific man, and they ended up surrendering the, the entire gospel. And uh, I'm, again, I want to be emphatic. I'm not saying that any of the men in our circles that are fouled with biologos are doing that, but... Uh, but what I don't think is being realized is is when you when you go to scripture with a particular way of reading it that says this cannot have happened this way, uh, what's to stop you from using that same principle in important anything to the to the other fantastic, you know, unbelievable things that happen in the Word of God at some point? Yeah, you- Jesus. Walking right, on exactly. water. I mean, how do you how do you explain yeah. that? How, no, no right. human being you can walk on water. It's absurd. If you're being logically consistent, and and praise the Lord, many of us are uh, blessedly inconsistent with our uh, presuppositions. That's the only saving grace. But at the same time, 
the church has to be vigilant to uphold the truth of, of the Word of God. I mean, that's one of those things that ought to go without saying, but unfortunately doesn't. You know, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I'm, I, I love to say that, you know, there's no perfect church, but if you don't aim for the center of the bullseye, you're never going to hit it. Right. right. And, and, and this is one of those issues where, yeah, we realize there's going to be, you know, we're not always going to get everything right. Our presuppositions are not always going to be correct. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is we still have to aim for the center of the target. Right. And the only thing we have to help us aim for the center of the target is the infallible, inspired scriptures. That's it. And, and so as we labor through these matters and try to keep that always in front of us, um, I think it helps. But as you have well said, it, 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 if we start jettisoning these things to try to appeal to the scientific influences that exist out there, uh, then we've got to deal with all these other problems. Uh, resurrection, Jesus walking on the water, healing the blind, raising the dead. Uh, I mean, really? Yeah. Right. How could he have done that? I mean, I've never seen anybody raise someone for the dead. So, I'm, you know, that couldn't have happened that way. We have to redevise or reinvent that story, as it were, again. And that, that's the problem with all of these types of issues. Anyway, we are running long, so let's move to number four. And I want to preface this, and I, I guess it's Pastor Pierce. I think it's your turn. Um, Actually, this is Jeff's turn. <laughs> well, you both can weigh in. I mean, don't feel like you can't talk. I mean, unless you're afraid. Well, anyway. Um, the insider movement is interesting. I just came from um, the Banner of Truth conference up in um, Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania, uh, this year. Very blessed. What a wonderful conference. Uh, powerful preaching. Um, kind of a shout out to the Banner uh, guys out there that they put on a wonderful conference every year. And if you, the listeners that are, are ministers and elders in the church, if you don't, if you have never gone to a Banner conference, you should. The fellowship is phenomenal. The conferences, the preaching is wonderful. Um, but I had the, the, the privilege of being more informed by a man who knows from whence he speaks on this subject. David Garner did um, uh, an hour-long lecture uh, presentation on the insider movement. And, and I, I admit that when I went into that lecture, I was still scratching my head trying to understand all the ins and outs of it. But coming out of it, I at least had a... a pretty good working summation of the insider movement. So, Ken, why don't you tell the listeners, what is the insider movement? In a a summary way. Right. As I understand it, it asks several questions, and there are varying degrees, even among its advocates. Uh, But one of those issues concerns when we translate uh, the scripture into Arabic and are uh, attempting to reach the Islamic world, there are portions of the Word of God that are read uh, by uh, Muslims as not offensive in the sense that the gospel should be offensive, but the implications of them are very are not the implications we would want them to take away from them. For instance, as I'm translating, uh, when we're talking about the Trinity, translating Father Son sorts of language might imply ancestral relationships or things like that. So. We have to take that into account in translating and come up with uh, novel ways of, of uh, communicating these truths. That I'm not advocating for that. I'm just stating what their position is. And, mm-hmm. and the other side of that is how how far out of the mosque must a believer come? Can can a believer can a Christian a, a born again Christian? remain in a mosque as somewhat of a clandestine Christian. And the insider movement, again, to varying degrees, would say yes. Um, 
I think this is absolutely lethal. I've talked to missionaries who deal with the Islamic world. Certainly they're not univocal in this, uh, but, uh, but they see it as absolutely lethal. I mean, we have uh, people who have converted from Islam to Christianity who have been martyred, who have been separated from their families, who have been martyred by their families. We've had bombs thrown into churches uh, by radical Islamists. And, and now the Western world from our enlightened purse is going to say, well, all of that was somewhat in vain. You, if you had only known you could have been a Christian in private, you wouldn't have had to pay this uh, heavy price. And... Uh, I, I think, you know, it's a, a, one of those issues that absolutely blindsided me. Some of the quarters it's coming out of uh, just completely surprised me. Um, but, and I just can't believe, again, it's, it goes, it's like the female ordination issue, that anybody could go to the Word of God and say, well, we can tamper or alter this because what it says may be offensive to somebody. Uh, You're right. You've given away everything. Yep. I mean, I, I'm, re- I'm reminded of what Christ said about you know those kinds of matters. I mean, if you're going to follow him, you're going to have to give up, and you're going to be opposed by your family members and friends. And anyway, um, Jeff, you want to say? Well, something? I just I just wanted to mention. I mean, this is a a 300 page report, and I mean, I think it's important that when we have this conversation, that we recognize that we are backed up by that report. I think that the writers of the the majority position have done a fantastic job outlining it, and I would recommend. Uh, that people take a look at it. But if I were to boil 300 pages down to, to two basic questions, I would want uh, people to recognize the significance of this issue comes by asking the question, uh, you know, what does it mean to identify with Christ in the first place? Mm-hmm. And in the second mm-hmm. place, uh, do suffering, alienation, possibly losing uh, status or, or positions in households even being uh, being blacklisted by your family, does that give us permission to remain in idolatrous contexts? And uh, like Ken said, I think the Bible speaks very clearly about it. And, and uh, again, these two these two viewpoints, the viewpoint of the minority report and, and the viewpoint of the main, uh, main report, say two different things on that theological perspective. And yep. uh, that... The minority reports trying to frame it in the sense that they're complementary, but I just I can't see how the two walk hand in hand. And, and the report itself does a good job of of laying out the differences between the minority and the and the committee report. And, and so I would just recommend uh, they 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 have it broken down in a in a very palatable format. And I would just recommend that uh, any elder planning to attend the general assembly would avail themselves of it and and take the time to read it. I think I think it would be very helpful encouraging the commissioners that come to GA to do their homework, uh, not try to make these decisions on the floor when they haven't really had time to digest the material. Um, and I think that's a deficiency of the assembly because we don't oftentimes get that material, at least in my limited experience, and I, and I am underscore limited, uh, we don't get that material until the 11th hour. And um, well, it makes it hard. Well, if I can just go back to the... The, the evening of confessional concern and prayer, uh, that's one of the hopes. I mean, I think it's easy to read through a, a document, and even while reading through a document, you don't consider all the implications or uh, all the different permutations that can flow out of it. And so even uh, just by coming and participating and hearing uh, people present, it may, it may cause you to think through the issue so that when time does come to, to hold up that little card, as you said, uh, Bill, then, then you can do it 
firmly convinced in your conscience of of what you're about about to vote for. I think it's important. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, it, and it is a critical issue. Again, it's a hermeneutical issue. It, I mean, it's funny how everything seems to boil down to that um, at the end of the day. Well, as we wrap things up, I think we've done a good job of covering, at least in summary fashion, um, and, and um, these particular subjects. I guess the question for me is, what kind of response have you gotten, have you received from this desire to meet before? Well, we've, we've been the, the congregation that's collected kind of the RSVPs, and we've had a very good response, uh, better than, than I had anticipated, especially with a short notice. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so I've been really encouraged. Uh, people have, have sent messages saying, explaining that they couldn't be there, but that they were appreciative of the effort. And so I, I hope that goes across the board, uh, and, and I hope that it's a, a benefit to folks. I think uh, for, for Ken and for Mel and Rick and, and me, as we began discussing this, I think that the prayer component was so central in terms of uh, that acknowledgement, again, of, of the Lord's lordship over his church his his kingdom rule over the church and and uh i just think it's so important that we we come together we think about these things we're serious about the task that the lord has given to us but we recognize that we perform that task as as uh, sinful men and and so we are mm. we are in need of his of his wisdom and and to come together right. and pray about it is is essential absolutely and i'm so glad that that's really the focus here um you know we, we want to be clear I think you want to be clear, let me put it that way, that this is not a, um, it's not a gripe session, it's not a bash session, it's not a us-against-them session, it's not anything like that. Um, I'm just curious, though, I will ask this, um, have you received any negative feedback? Uh, I have not yet. I, have you heard anything, Ken? No, not a, not a, not a peek. I haven't heard good. anything negative, so... I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's okay. <laughs> Sometimes it makes me wonder, you know, it's, I used to tell my employees that... Uh, uh, when I was in the retail world and managing uh, people that uh, your customers won't generally complain, they just won't come back. Um, you know, that's ju- it's just easier that way. You know, they just don't come back. They're not going to complain. They're just not going to come back. And um, uh, anyway, and so I, sometimes I always get, a, it's like when you don't hear any negative things, I'm like, hmm, I don't know, what does that mean? But anyway, um, it's hard to know. Yeah. But I think the intention is good. I think the motivation is good. Um, I, I think it's honoring to Christ. And um, to help inform as well as demonstrate our reliance on the Savior. And, um, I mean, at at the end of the day, that's the important issue when it comes to any matters in the church, whether it's at the local session dealing with issues inside of a local church or it's in Presbytery or it's at at the General Assembly level. That should always be something that we're seeking to uh, do, uh, depend upon Him and His Spirit and not... Our own ingenuity and our because you know the joke you put a hundred Presbyterians in the room and you'll have a hundred different opinions so um, you know it's we see that I think oftentimes and um, I'm not always sure it's um, very helpful or edifying uh, to say the least uh, one one of you I don't care who um, tell the listeners where when all you know the 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 how tos kind of information. Well, uh, we, we're meeting on the Monday uh, prior to General Assembly, so June the 16th. We're meeting uh, in the Hilton Americas Conference Center. We've reserved a Grand Ballroom J for the purpose of getting together. We begin at 7 o'clock. 
probably run for two hours, maybe a little bit more than two hours in terms of discussion and prayer. And uh, we're, we have a Facebook page. I can get the link over to you, Bill, if you want to post. Yeah, why, don't you e- yeah, why don't you email that to me, and then I'll include it with the post that I put on the ConfessingOurHope.com website. Right. That'd be great. And, and there, there's, you know, it's not a, a great amount of information, but that information will be on the, on the uh, Facebook page. And then, uh, you know, if that gives people a, an opportunity to interact on the issue as well, should they choose to do so. But uh, that's that's the goal. Uh, Monday, June 16th at 7 p.m. at uh, Grand Ballroom J in the Hilton Americas Conference Center. Now, do you want RSVPs, or can people, if they haven't contacted you at that point, can they just show up? They can. Uh, they're, everybody's free to show up. Uh, they don't have to RSVP. We, we've simply asked people to RSVP so we can get some kind of a sense of the number. But uh, we don't have to do really anything to prepare other than, you know, print off some, some photocopies. We're going to do a little bit of... Uh, prayer and, and some sing some hymns so we so we need to make sure we have enough copies of the song but gotcha. but uh, it's it's minor so anybody okay. can show up very good so if you're interested or you're going to ga then um avail yourself of this opportunity i don't care where you stand i i, I don't think that's the issue um you, you know if you serve christ and you love the lord and you want the church to grow and be edifying and 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 all that um, you may not agree with everything. Okay, fine, whatever. Um, but um, we can agree to pray and about these matters because at the end of the day, what else do we have left? And so if you are going to GA, then take advantage of this. And I realize it's an evening before everything starts and all this stuff that you can we can make excuses for or reasons. Um, but um, I don't know, in my mind, I don't think this has ever happened before. Now, I mean, I've only been in the denomination since 98. I don't remember anything like this ever happening before. So take advantage of it. And, um, you know, God does work through prayer. Uh, and it always amazes me that he does. Um, so use, utilize this opportunity to depend on, on, on God for the, the future of this denomination and, and the issues that you're in front of. Um, you have responsibility. You're, you're elders in the church. Um, and so it, it doesn't mean if you don't go, you don't care about the responsibility, but you have a responsibility to vote and, and, and follow the standards that, that you have taken vows to follow. <laughs> and if I'm not careful, I'll get on a soapbox, so I'll get off it right now. <laughs> Gentlemen, it's been great. Um, I, I, I think this has been very helpful and informative. I've learned a few things um, from you as you've been talking, and um, I hope the listeners get a sense of the heart behind this um, and, and what you're really trying to accomplish. I think it's a great thing, and I trust the Lord will bless it. Um, I'll be praying for you, though I won't be there in person, but I'll be praying for you and for the assembly, of course, and, and um, as you in, in, take this up. And uh, trust the Lord will bless it and uh, work through you men and all the men that go to the assembly this year uh, to be faithful to Christ and his church. Well, thanks for having us on, Bill. Yes, thank you, bet. you much, Bill. You bet. If you guys will hold on just a second, let me wrap up, uh, do a little uh, housekeeping, I guess, is, for lack of a better word. It'll be brief because I have no idea. Um, as I've, I've said many times in the past, uh, what's coming up on the pro- program, I'm not really sure. Um, uh, I have a gentleman that's that secures guests for me, and we're a little behind um, getting those things lined up. But um, I have some ideas what we're going to be talking about in the future, but I'll just reserve that for the website which is confessingourhope.com. If you want to know about this program, if you want to know who I am, well, maybe not. Um, but other things that we do, 
on this program, you can go to confessingourhope.com. All the information is there, past broadcasts, um, how to get the mobile app, how to get the RSS feed, if you like iTunes or all that stuff, um, whatever. Um, just go to the website. That's where all the information is often um, is often located. So go there. So until next time, whenever that will be, hopefully next week, um, we thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.